Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Welcome back to another edition of the Internet's Most Dangerous Tottenham Hotspur Podcast. It is Wheeler Dealer Radio. We are back to talk about an exciting, I was about to say 3-1 victory, but it was a 3-2 victory. Thanks, Eric Dyer, against Newcastle United this week. Uh, we are joined uh, not only by one of our regular co-hosts, but a special guest this week. But Before we get to that, I want to remind everyone to follow our podcast Twitter account, which I am somehow just remembering not to call new because it's over a year old, at WDR Podcast. That's WDR as in Wheel of Dealer Radio. And we've been very good boys, so why not go leave us a five-star review on iTunes or some other podcast service. I guess, I guess Spotify is the only other one we're on. So leave us a five-star review there. It'd be nice. Now, joining us this week, we have, as per usual, it is Ben Daniels coming to us live from the Dirty Dirty. Ben, how are you doing? Um. Doing great. I'm just staring at Ryan's stupid Dodgers hat and uh, thinking about how good the Braves are. Way to, way to blow the reveal. Uh, next up, we have a special co-host coming to us f- from from Los Angeles via Kansas City. It is Ryan Rosenblatt. Ryan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I, I like Ben's foreshadowing there where he talks about a sports team with dubious morals. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, sports teams' morals are fine. The fans' morals are very, very <laughs> terrible. Let's 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 pump the brakes here. Newcastle at least have a stadium where you want to go and watch things, unlike the Braves. So you know they at least have that going for them. Um, also, our, our regular other co-host Brian Ashlock is here this week. He has just muted his microphone and won't be talking the whole time. So, uh, really, just like embracing the bit in a way that I find genuinely very impressive. So, yeah, we have a 3-2 victory against Newcastle to talk about. Ryan, you're our guest, so I'll start off with you. Is I think this was uh, – it's a hard game to sort of parse because it's Newcastle who aren't very good, but at the same time, it's probably Spurs' best game of the season, or at least after a nervy opener, opening couple minutes, I think Spurs were just comfortably in control for the rest of the match. I, I mean – did you enjoy it? Let's start there because there have been a lot of enjoyable performances this year. Yeah, I mean, it was it was fun to see a Tottenham team that just, for the most part, is like, okay, we're better than you. Here are good players. And then they outplayed the other team. Like, it, it seems pretty simple, but the, the, the outline was there to do that in several other matches this year that we didn't. So it was nice to just see, like, uh, the players go out there and it's just like, Hey, Harry Kane, good at soccer. Like, Youngman's son, good at soccer. Tanga Endeavour, like, good at soccer. And, like, go up and down. And you're just like, hey, we have good soccer players who can play well. And, like, it's 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 pretty basic. And, like, if you want to project it out, I think you can also kind of see the outline or the foundation of, of something that could potentially be um, replicable going forward. And maybe this is kind of the start of us putting together a functional team that can beat teams that are not um newcastle but at a minimum it it was actually fun to watch us just you know be better than a team that we're supposed to be better than so ryan i want to 
run this by you because I think we've talked about versions of this on the podcast before. But given that we're coming out of a game that where it sort of worked, is it fair to say? Would it be how how much am I wish casting if I were to say a lot of what we've seen this year is a mixture of Nuno experimenting with lineups and dealing with an unstable squad versus he's just sort of not up to snuff. I mean, I mean, after a game like this where, or honestly, a game or two where we've seen him working in Dombley into the squad, getting some of his players, you know, back who have been unavailable. I mean, is that, do you think that's, there's some version of that happening or did we just happen to put some guys on the field who happen to be better than the team we played and that's what happened? I'm not entirely sure. Um, it like our we have good players and they were able to create things in the final third, um, which they haven't done a great job earlier in the season. But I think the bigger issue for this team has been getting the ball to the final third. And this match didn't tell us anything about that because Newcastle just let us walk it into the final third. So is this, Hey, they're starting to figure out the final third and maybe three matches from now, they'll figure out how to get it to the final third. And and then it, starts coming together and by december this is like a fully functional good team that nuno has assembled and built up and kind of was just hamstrung by a lot of turnover a new manager international breaks like that's all plausible and totally possible like, i i don't know if that's the case um i it's also possible that like if a team lets us walk into the final third we're good and if a team doesn't do that we just don't really have a plan and any idea of how to how to progress the ball Maybe he, maybe that's just kind of going to take some more time. Maybe it's just not there. I have no idea, but Hey, being able to do something in the final third is a thing we couldn't do before. So we are better than we were a month ago. I'll take that in the meantime. Well, Ben, we've, we've talked, you've talked a lot about this on Twitter and we've talked a lot about this in the writer's room, but you know, the Indomble as a 10 thing hasn't been wildly successful thus far, but I do think if you squint, you know, it's, Nuno trying something and certainly it was better in this match than it's been in previous matches. I mean, what do you think about that? Is this something where, I mean, whether that specific tactic or him tinkering with the team, I mean, what do you think we're seeing here? Yeah. So, I mean, if you go back to when Tongi first came in the team against, you know, Chelsea and Wolves and was very effective on the ball, but, you know, lost team, maybe lost possession a little too much in midfield. I think Nuno has definitely recognized the value he adds and is concerned about what he takes off the table. And, you know, we saw in the last two games, he reverted back to that Oliver Skip and Pierre, Emil Hoiberg midfield to provide a little more of a stable foundation for him to work from. Um, and I think Tongi didn't really have a, a fantastic game against Aston Villa. Um, he was a little peripheral, but, you know, this seemed to be us figuring out how to get him on the ball from that further forward position and allow him the influence over the game and also make sure we were protected on the other side of the ball, which I think over the course of the season, we've really had to sacrifice one or the other. And if this is us putting that together in a way that like Ryan said, like actually makes sense and is something to build on. That's great. If it's just Newcastle are terrible 
uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens next week. I mean, it's probably a little bit of both, if we're being fair. I, I mean, Newcastle are awful, but, I mean, that's at least two matches and probably more in a row where you've seen Tottenham experimenting with tactics that at least have us, I don't know if it's, you know, good enough, which I think for us as Spurs fans means Champions League football, but it's at least trending in the positive, which, God, after the last two years, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to grab on anything for dear life. Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, the most telling thing about this game was that Nuno recognized the need to rush back uh, Romero and Royale into the team. You know, he benched both of them for the Arsenal game, and it was a debacle. And, you know, last week against Villa, or I guess that was two weeks ago before the international break, but we saw what a difference their presence made, both defensively and their passing in the team. And we could have very easily said, you know, they're not ready to come back and we could run out somebody else. And I think Nuno learned that lesson, that they make a big difference. And that, as much as anything, I think is a, is a really encouraging sign of him recognizing who the important players are, who the good players are, and, you know, how to kind of build something around those guys. Ryan, are you, like me, just afraid to get hurt again with our fullbacks? Because I think we actually have two good starting fullbacks again. And it's kind of weird. After I mean, it's weird because I think there's a very strong argument that for three or four years there in the mid-2010s, Spurs had the best fullback pairing in the Premier League. And then we had total garbage for a couple of years. And now... You know, I think there's a lot of kinks to work out, but I, I think Royale and Regulon are is a really good pairing, at least, you know, on on any given day. Yeah, I mean, I I'm pretty confident in Royale. Um, like, and I was I, I was pretty confident when we signed him. Um, I'm like, I don't know how good he's going to be, but I'm pretty confident he is some level of good. And so, hey, at a minimum, we're just like look at the right back, and we're like, cool. Like, we don't have to worry about that. Which, hey, I'll take it. And if he is better than that, awesome. And, and I think there's reason to believe he might be. I'm not entirely sold on Reggion yet. I, I mean, I love him. I love him dearly. He is a spectacular little shithouser. Um, and I other reasons to, be to love him. Other reasons to love him after this week as well. So yeah, and so I, I love him. And the last two games in particular, like his passing has been so much better, which actually makes him a good fullback. I'm not entirely sold that this is who he is yet because it's it's been two games. If this is who he is and, and that passing really is at the level it's been at, then we have two really good fullbacks. It, I, I'm not entirely all in on believing that yet. Um, but I, I mean, I think for the first time in a while, probably in about a year, there's the, the arrows kind of pointing up on him again. And that's exciting. And, and maybe, maybe he, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time, especially for a younger guy, and also going through three managers, um, it wouldn't be the first time it took some time for someone to kind of find their footing in a new league and a new club um, new and, and figure all that out. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I, I think it's distinctly possible that, like, he's finally found it and he's going to be good now. I, I'm not entirely sold on it yet, but I'm starting to believe again, and that's exciting. I mean, certainly, yeah, like, I think the thing with, with Sergio, I think coaching has been – I, I don't think there's anybody at Spurs who's been as big a victim of, of the coaching carousel as him. I think he was so good at Sevilla. And... <laughs> Come on. So many <laughs> players have been a huge victim of the coaching carousel. I think, I think some other players have been as, uh, causing as much problems themselves as others. But I, I think 
You, my point is, you look at his level of play at Sevilla, which is a real league, unlike Ligue 1, and you look at sort of how he came into Spurs, and then he had this dip as just, you know, the Mourinho era cratered. I don't know. He's the kind of guy where if he came into, like, you know, Pochettino Spurs before Pochettino gave up on life, you know, I, I just think we would have seen a remarkably different player. And, I, I again, I don't, I'm not totally sold on Nuno as a coach, but at least I don't think Nuno is running weird PSYOP operations during training. So, I, I think I mean, you're seeing an improvement as things stabilize. I mean, I think to your point, too, is I'm – I mean, yeah, our, our managing has been horrific for a lot of specific reasons, but I don't think there's kind of any position or position group, if you want to call it, that that we in the last year between three managers have had as many different things asked of them as our fullbacks have. The way Jose played his fullbacks versus the way Mason played his fullbacks versus the way Nuno does, all three are just so different. And so I think for all of our fullbacks, like any of them to kind of walk in there and then kind of just be changing up how they're supposed to play and what they're supposed to do all the time. I think all of our fullbacks have really suffered from that. And yeah, like you say, he, he came over and he, things looked good for him at Sevilla and then it kind of all went to shit. So, I mean, I think that explains a lot of it, hopefully. Um, I also think that it's, it's interesting because when he came over and his kind of reputation at Sevilla was this really big attacking force. And I think for us, he's, that's been the issue is his passing hasn't been good enough. He hasn't gotten the ball forward. He hasn't been an attacking threat, but I also think his defending has been far better than it was sold to us. So I, I think if you have to go kind of one way or the other, you'd prefer the guy who's proven over the course of a year, he can do the thing that you weren't sure he'd be able to do. And then with time, we'll remember how to do the thing that he was supposed to be good at. So if that's what we're seeing from him now, that's super exciting. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I think to Greg's point, unlike everybody else who's had who's been a victim of the coaching carousel, there's nothing else hanging over, you know, Regulon's head. He hasn't been injured. He hasn't had any attitude problems. He's been a regular fixture in the team. He just hasn't been very good. We've all given him a pass because he seems like a lovely young man. He's got a great, you know, social media presence. He's just a seems like a nice guy who always works hard. You know, at the very least, you can always tell he's trying out there. Um, but he, like Ryan said, is finally adding an attacking dimension to his game. And it's not just his passing, like as an outlet flying down the wing and like providing some kind of structure to our attacking shape. Um, he's been incredibly valuable. Just, just being there and being able to recover from being there is, is a huge difference from like seeing Ben Davis at left back or Matt Doherty doing something, you know, it's, it's, it's really nice to see how how dynamic he can be. And, like, we got that when he first got here, you know? It's, it's easy to forget that now, but when he first came into this team, he looked exactly like he was promised to be. Um, well, Jose so, beat it out of him. Right, right. And so, you know, I, I, I am less like Ryan where I'm skeptical that he's going to come good. I, I am kind of firmly believing that, like, we're about to see the best of, of Sergio. Because he's he's just finally in an environment that is just, I think, better for him to just show off what he can do. You know, I I want to take a second to talk about him as a player that you can root for, too. Because, I mean, we're such easy marks. I'm such an easy mark for some of this stuff. But, you know, after the summer of, like, Harry Kane, after one of our own, you know, 
sort of dragging his reputation through the mud and Eric Lamella leaving the club, it's, there is something very refreshing about the way he interacts with us as fans. You know, certainly I think what we saw with him saving that fan's life just reinforces what a lovely person he is. But on top of that, um, you know, certainly not as important as that, but you know, like in the summer, he's like recruiting Brian Heal. He's talking about, you're going to love playing here. It's such a great club. And you know, like, there is anyone who has a reason to think any any player who joined after the Champions League final has every reason in the world to talk about what a disaster Spurs are. But he just he loves playing for us. He loves being here. He's embraced being in a new country. He seems he's certainly embraced what it means to play for Spurs. I mean, he is maybe I mean he's certainly inherited Eric Lamella's mantle of like my favorite guy to root for on the team. He's not the best player on the team. He certainly had his struggles, but like you really want him to succeed because. He clearly enjoys being here so much, and I don't know how much that's worth to us as fans, but it's certainly it's nice to see. It's nice to have players that it feels like they want to be here and enjoy being here, and I think Regulon just really fits that bill. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's I mean a light. <laughs> I mean, and also, I mean, go kind of just looking at the fullbacks in general, like, like I said, I, I'm not entirely convinced that we know how to get the ball to the final third against like good teams. But if we're not going to figure out how that midfield passes the ball through, the fullbacks are the other option. And it's Nuno's preferred option. So if they are legitimately good on both sides now, and that that kind of is almost like a hack to the problem that we may not be able to solve. And they, they just may bail us out anyway. And if you combine the way that we've played in the final third with our fullbacks being able to get the ball there, even if it's not always the prettiest way, that 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 is probably going to end up as a pretty good way of winning football games, even if it may not be always the prettiest way of winning football games. Yeah, I mean, we we've, I think we've talked before about the, you know, skip Pierre midfield and its limitations, but especially when we have guys like Ndombele and Lo Celso who we are marginalizing to put them on the pitch so Nuno could work the ball down the flanks. Um, actually having guys who can work the ball down the flanks, you know, it's it's a philosophy I still vehemently disagree with, but if you're going to do it, like, you need guys who can do it, and it looks like these might be some guys who can do it. So, hey. Say what you want about Nuno socialism, but at least it's a philosophy, right? <laughs> well, I mean, so... I mean, I guess this to a degree kind of leads me to a question that I still kind of have, even as we've played better the last couple games. Um, how much of it do you think is the competition versus how we're playing in particular with the midfield? Because despite the fact that we did look good against Newcastle and Newcastle didn't generate very much, there were a couple times where we were caught out on the counter or where we were vulnerable to it. And I think the back line did a very good job of cutting it out so it didn't turn into shots. A better team may turn that into shots and may kind of hit us for that. Are are you worried that we are vulnerable to the counter, which is going to be a problem for a manager like Nuno? Or is it that we're willing to take chances because we're playing Newcastle and, and that opportunity won't be there for better teams because we're going to be kind of more cognizant of what the other team could do whereas we're just like it's Newcastle go and try and score I, I think it's a little bit of column a a little bit of column b I think I think you're starting to see this team get a little more comfortable with the way they play but I think they're going to give up 
you know, I, I think as long as Eric Dyer is in our defense, you know, we're going to have issues with the counter sooner or later in matches. But I do think you're starting to see some willingness to, like, that's just the cost of doing business for us. And I think they're willing to, just, like, give teams a couple opportunities to come up with some, some something resembling a coherent attacking philosophy in these games. Because on the one hand, you're right. Like, Newcastle aren't very good. Villa aren't great, but they are, like, a halfway decent mid-table side. And we've looked worse against worse teams this year. I mean, you you look at the early games this year, which, you know, again, if you want to be fair to Nuno, we had a lot of squad issues at the time. But, you know, we did not look good in some of those games where we stole points. And, you know, say whatever you want about these matches, but, you know, like Villa and Newcastle at a minimum – you know, we look like the better side. We look like we deserve three points in both of those matches. And I don't think that's entirely a coincidence. So, I think so let me kind like, of just... Oh, no, I go think, ahead, Ben. I just think when you talk about, like, the kind of counters that we suffered against Newcastle, you know, I think the way the course of that game played out, I think, has a lot to do with it. Like, we looked bad at the beginning of the game. Like, yes, that's true. But once you got through that hurdle we really stepped on the gas and got on the front foot and, you know, knew we needed to score two goals. And once we kind of got into that mode, we never really let off that. And like, there was a little maybe naivety in, in doing so because we did leave ourselves vulnerable, but we were just so comfortable about against Newcastle that I think, you know, you know, Pierre was, gallivanting forward more than I think Nuno would normally like him to play um, against a better side. You know, we were just, we were pressing for goals. And then, I mean, honestly, it's a miracle that we didn't score more goals in the second half. I've never seen us look so comfortable for so long without it turning into anything. Um, But, you know, we just, we did not manage that game in a kind of professional manner because it was so easy. And I, and I think that, we would play a little more maturely in a tougher game, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, so kind of the, the let's like the timeline or or the kind of way that I could see it potent. And I'm again, I'm not saying I think this is the way it is. I'm not entirely sure, but the way that I could see it going, because I I I kind of agree on the sense that like, listen, Eric Dyer's gonna be playing back there or some kind of central defender who to this point, we don't have a lot of reason to be entirely confident in. And if that, if that's why we're giving up chances, like that's kind of just the reality of the squad. My concern, I guess, happens more in the midfield. And so I think that's kind of where we've looked more vulnerable. And and the way that I could see it playing out is we looked worse at the beginning of the season. um, And a big reason for that was skip was just outright bad. Um, and it's really hard to not give up chances when you're one of your center midfielders is just getting dribbled around and passed by all the time. He has gotten much better. And I think that kind of to a degree can account for a lot of that um, improvement is one of our central midfielders is now playing at a premier league speed, um, which like the dude was playing in the championship last year, needing a month to kind of adjust to the premier league is, is no, especially because we, for a lot of reasons we were making him probably play in much tougher situations than we should have. There's no shame there, but if that's kind of the source of the improvement, I, 
there's kind of like a ceiling on that. And, and at some point you do have to be better defensively through the midfield and better teams are going to make you pay for it. If that accounts for the entire improvement, I think that's a problem. Um, I think, and I, and I'm not sure if that, and I'm not sure if that's the case and we just haven't been hit by it because teams have, we haven't played teams good enough to do it. And as time goes on, it's going to change. Or if you know what, we we've, we've gotten better because, or we're, we can tighten that up and there's kind of way a way B and way C we could tighten that up and kind of adjust the way we're playing. And this is still kind of in its infancy of Nuno system that we're going to improve in. I, I, I hate saying this cause I do think it sounds like an excuse, but I don't think you can dismiss it entirely. I think there's, I, I think there's something to be said for a lot of these guys were missing. Nuno did not get to work with a lot of these guys over the summer. I mean, whatever you think of him as a manager, we're probably not yet seeing how he wants his team to play or how he wants them to work together. And I think we're probably only just seeing a lot of that in terms of, you know, how he wants them to interact, how he wants them to set up. Because, I mean, a lot of these guys just weren't available, uh, flat out, not able to play. He didn't have a chance to, like, you know, get them drilled in the summer as to how he wants them to play. And I... I think a lot of us are very skeptical of Nuno as a manager. Whatever else you want to say about it, like I mean, he's got to have an opportunity to get these guys on the same page, and we really haven't. I mean, we're probably only just getting to the stage where that's not an excuse he can use anymore. So, I mean, I, I guess think... my question is more, do you believe that's the case and it's just going to take a little bit more time, or is it a thing that has you worried? Because like, I could see it going both ways, yeah, and I'm not think... convinced one or the other. So I, I'm just curious, like, do you believe do you believe that that's the case, or is it just, or are you in the same boat as me where you're just like, I really have no fucking clue which one it is. I don't have a clue. I, mean, I think that's the case. I just don't know if when they get there it's going to be enough. Does that make sense? Like, I think it's true. I just don't know if when they get to the end of that if it's going to be good enough. I mean, for me, I think it's just it's a question of balance, right? Like we have these two nominally defensive midfielders in in Skip and Hoybjerg, and you know, Skip is for now a limited player who doesn't offer you a lot on the ball, but is starting to offer something in a defensive capacity, and that's great. Hoybjerg in this match was an absolute maniac. He had nine tackles, 11 ball recoveries, and was also on the front foot with the ball constantly. And, you know, I think that's very much a Newcastle thing that allowed him to play both sides of the ball so well. And so as we move forward, I don't believe that Pierre is going to be afforded that that freedom to do everything unless Skip takes like a huge leap. And but, so we're probably going to depend on them to do a lot more defensive work as a unit and a lot less progressive work together. And as Ryan was saying, we are still struggling to move the ball into the final third. So it's going to be about balancing the rest of the team to make that happen. And like, yes, we hope the fullbacks can do that. We hope we can figure out a way and Domble ahead of them makes that happen. I don't know that this is going to work. I don't know. Like we could very well come into the next game and Ndombele is playing the 10 again and is completely cut off by an active opposition midfield that keeps Pierre and Skip from getting the ball to him. And maybe we keep it tight defensively, but we just can't get the ball out of our own half. Like that's entirely possible that that's what this is going to look like. Ben, it's worth pointing out. And again, whether he can balance this with his defensive play. I mean, we saw, I, I was surprised at least this summer. I know that he did more 
he was expected to do more progressive work at Southampton. But with Denmark, I thought Hoiberg acquitted himself very well being a more progressive midfielder. So the question is, can he do both of these? Can he flip that switch during games without costing us? And Because I think that might end up being the kind of thing that defines whether or not Nuno's a success at Spurs. Is if Hoiberg can be a little bit, play a little bit more on the front foot without sacrificing all of the sort of defensive solidity he gives us. So I, I, I actually, I don't think that's so much of a question. I think that we know that he's very good. And if he's going to play as a defensive midfielder, he'll do that. If you're going to play him in more of the role that he played against Newcastle, he'll do that well. I, I think he's actually, he, he's the guy we don't have to worry about because whatever role we put him in, he's going to be at least a B plus. And so... Like, I don't think that's the question. I, I think kind of Ben kind of leads me to, I guess, the, the, the real question if we're looking at the midfield is, let's assume Skip does not make a huge jump with the ball. If he does, that really solves a lot. But let's just assume for a minute that he doesn't because he's a 21-year-old playing in the Premier League for the first year, and that usually takes time. Um, are we good enough defensively Is in that midfield? Is he good enough defensively in that midfield? that we are going to be such a good defensive team that what he doesn't give us and what the midfield doesn't give us moving the ball forward doesn't sink the team because we're so good defensively. Or do we have to drop skip for a midfielder that can move it forward like LaCelso? But if we do that, are we good enough defensively, whether that's for Nuno or for the team to get results? I, I think that I think kind of those are the two tracks here. And I, right. I don't really know but how I feel. There could be no, a bit of I a mean, false choice there. What if, and, and I know that you're talking about putting someone in the attacking third, but if you put LaCelso in for Lucas, there might be ways of solving some of this progression. I mean, you have to drop in, but you know, you, you get LaCelso on that field for someone who's not as productive, you might be able to solve some of these problems. I think we're going to be relying a lot on Skip this year. I think we're, we're betting a lot of money on him. And I don't know... Like, honestly, I thought he was a lot better in this match. I thought he's been a lot better for the last month, to be honest with you. Well, that's the – I think that's kind of the thing that I was trying to get at earlier is as Pierre being the eight, you know, the more progressive partner in that midfield, was still the guy who made nine tackles and 11 ball recoveries. Skip did a lot of defensive work, but Pierre still had to do a lot of defensive work. And so against a better team, he's not going to be afforded the luxury of – helping skip out like that and also carrying the weight of our, of our progression. And yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with Greg that figuring out a way to get, I think, I think for Nuno, Lo Celso and Ndombele are kind of question marks and Skip and Pierre are the guys he knows he can rely on to lock that midfield down if he needs it. And we haven't figured out really the balance of doing that and also having a progressive attack. And you know, figuring out a way to get Los Celso and Ndombele and Pierre and Skip on the pitch at the same time, I think is the only way that Nuno Ball is really going to thrive because otherwise we're just going to be trading off defensive attack. I don't feel confident that he can play a Pierre and Los Celso or Pierre and Ndombele midfield and have the solidity he wants. And I don't feel like he can play both of those guys without both Ndombele and Los Celso and have the linkage to the front three in the final third that we need. Yeah, Greg, I mean, I, I think... Brian. Hey, Brian. Brian, you're muted. 
Oh, I'm, I'm doing a Brian. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> no, it's even more tricky than it normally would be because I, I think Skip is improving. And, and the question is, how much is he improving? Because I think there's, you know, we could talk about, by the end of the year, Skip could be a average Premier League midfielder, a below average Premier League midfielder, or above average. Like, there, there's clearly been improvement in the, like, what, two, three months, however long it's been since the season started. I mean... He's a different player than he was. And maybe this is the ceiling we're seeing right now, or maybe there's going to be more progression. But it seems like we've bet a lot on that. And there's, like you said earlier, Ryan, there's a lot of reasons we've bet on that. But it's it's a tricky in terms of, like, it's a tricky bet in terms of how you're going to structure this team. So, I mean, in I guess kind of – so, I mean, I, I guess kind of to Ben's point, though, is Pierre still had to do so much. So, so, so much. And, and, I mean, at this point, we have given up the most goals of any team in the top 10. We are have the fourth worst XG against in the entire league. We're not solid defensively. Like, Skip and Pierre are in there nominally to make us solid defensively, but we're not. So, I mean, the question is, is, if this is our solve, if Skip is in there to make us solid defensively, but it's not working, like we're kind of just assuming, well, they are going to play to make us solid defensively together in the midfield, but they're not doing it. So, but you're also talking about a couple of games with, with Romero out. With I mean, we've we've had a few, and there are a couple of games okay, that so, Skip so, didn't play. So like he... Skip didn't play against Chelsea and Arsenal. He didn't play against Crystal Palace. Fair, like... but so so here's my question though: if it's just it. Is Skip a really good defensive central midfielder, do you think, right now? No, but I think having a second decent defensive midfielder is key to kind of a foundation for Nuno to build on. I think it so, may require him falling out of the team eventually to really build, but I'm okay with it now as like a, a safe, you know, his little security blanket to make things feel a little better. Well, I don't know that's sure. I mean. It's also, I'm not, it's I'm also not, we're, we're playing a player who's a young player with an upside as opposed to, like, we're not playing Scott Parker at the end of his, at the twilight of his career. So I'm a little right, more right, fine right. with it because of that. Right. I'm, and I don't say this to, like, bash on Skip or to say that Nuno is an imbecile for playing Skip, anything like that. We're here and we've gotten here, and I think at a minimum what we've done and how Skip has played um, for the most part is reasonable, whether circumstantial or otherwise. It's fine. We're here now. Um but, like, if we are trying to get into Europe, which I even if it's the Europa League, even if it's the Conference League, if that's kind of where we're trying to get, I, I think that it's clear that we need to be better than we've been to this point. And so I think the question then becomes, is, Skip, is he going to be able to give us enough defensively that we can keep rolling him out every game? And I, I get what Ben is saying, that it, you need the guy to kind of make the system work whether that's a security blanket or whatever but at some point if you were not even if it makes Nuno feel better that we have that other guy who can tackle in the midfield um if it's not actually resulting in a great defense and he's not contributing to the attack and we're struggling to then score goals the results won't be there and, and the the nice security blanket doesn't feel so secure when you're not getting results. And so that's kind of just projecting out, looking at this midfield, because like I said, I think it could go either way in, in how any of this could go. I'm not entirely convinced. 
I, do, I mean, to me, the way I see it is Skip either needs to start adding some kind of passing um, forward or he needs to defend at a level that is not just acceptable because I think he's defended perfectly acceptably. Like, he, he is not the problem, but he needs to defend at a higher level than he has for this team to work. And I'm not convinced that he can do that, which means I think then we're fl- – if and if he can't, then you're flipping that midfield again – to try and make it work in a whole different way because, I mean, Giovanni's obviously a, a better player than Skip at this point, just one-to-one, but, like, putting Giovanni in for Skip means the midfield just plays differently. And, and then what does that do to the team, uh, to the fullbacks, to the front line, to the back line, to everybody? And then my question that kind of becomes how much of this progress is actually, that we've seen the last few weeks, is actually projectable to building upon something as opposed to, well, we found something that worked for now, but the future is still kind of going to require you flip it upside down again. And I, I'm, that's kind of where I, I kind of fall back to, this is nice, but I'm not really sure it tells us much other than we got six points. And I mean, we're sitting in fifth place right now. So those six points were nice, but I don't know if it's more than that. I, I guess I'd say in those, in these last two games with, with that midfield, we have been defensively pretty good. Like we haven't been conceding a ton of good chances. We haven't, I don't know what the expected goals numbers are, but we were very comfortable in both of those games. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if that's just a stopgap solution or if you can build around it. I mean, to me, the issue is less them than assuming that is a, a necessary component of this team. How do you build around that? You know, we have Kane and Son who are automatic and then two other spots in front of them. And we've tried Ndombele and Lucas. And, you know, we know Lucas blows very hot and cold. We know Ndombele has blown hot and cold and isn't quite, you know, at 10 in his his normal life, but is showing that he can do that a little bit. And so I think there's a lot of questions about what we can put in front of them that makes the limitations of that midfield acceptable as long as it's doing that defensive work. You know, we still have Brian Heal who has shown a lot and could show more. We have Bergbein who was showing that he, you know, might actually be pretty good before he got injured. We still have Los Elso who's won like man of the match for Argentina, like the last several matches and we can't figure out how to use him. Like, I think there's room to build around that. That works. Um, and I, I think, personally, I think Hoiberg is a good enough defensive midfielder that you shouldn't need to carry him with with an Oliver Skip when you have a guy like Los Elso who we know can do so much in midfield. Um, that seems to me like the obvious pairing if you're going to have a midfield. But I still think it might not be the optimal Spurs, but I think it might be a good enough Spurs to get us somewhere probably not top four but like top six yeah yeah and to be fair like if the issue if we fail at some point in the future because oliver skip wasn't good enough to do what we need him to do to be clear that's not all oliver skip's fault if nuno needs a 21 year old who just came up from the championship to make this team work that's nuno's fault not skip's fault so i mean like I'm pretty skeptical Skip can make it work, which just means that, hey, this is a stopgap now, and Nuno's still going to have to figure it out. 
but like I think Skip is doing a totally fine job. He's still even in a future that I see where he's probably not starting every game, still going to play a role. It's, it's this isn't this to me isn't so much a this Oliver Skip is the problem. I think the issue to this point is we need Oliver Skip so badly, um, and I think that kind of becomes that kind of becomes the issue. And well, we have this so like we have this very defensive midfield that we've been playing all year, and I think realistically just if if we're looking at it probably any whatever we see going forward is going to be built around that Hoybier skip midfield regardless of if it needs to be or not but you know we're going to see these players deployed more up the field so a lot's going to depend on sort of I think Hoybier and, and Dombele being able to progress the ball or if we can figure it out up the flanks but I, I just think it, it's sort of going to be what it is moving forward and I think we've seen a commitment to it at this point which just makes me think we're not going we're not getting away from this without injury right and I think that you know we talked at the beginning of the pod about the fullbacks and like what a nice development that is you know there's reason to believe that they will also continue to develop it's not just a skip developing you know we had we had Romero and Royale coming in from you know a 48 hour layover from like their previous match in another continent and still had very good games between the two of them. Like they're not always going to be playing under such adverse circumstances unless there's an international break in a week that I don't know about. I, I think you very well fucking that, could be. I think you like, can it's, it's in three weeks. So, <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> so we have a few more matches before we go through this again, but you know, like there's improvement all around like Harry Kane. We haven't talked about Harry Kane, but like looks like he might be, still playing for Tottenham Hotspur for the first time this season, you know, like that makes a big difference. Um, you know, so there's a lot of places that this team can get better and is getting better. That isn't so dependent on one 21 year old championship midfielder who, you know, to his credit, like had a very nice game this weekend and it doesn't sound like that from our conversation, but you know, by and large, everybody played like pretty good. And like, yeah, honestly, nice. if it wasn't for, like, and again, I think it's worth remembering, like, we were probably deserved week league winners under Pochettino, and we definitely had, like, the first five or ten minutes under matches as bad as what we saw against Newcastle. Like, we just didn't start that game very well, which is a totally forgivable sin. Like, it has happened under better managers on better teams than ours, and... You know, just with everything else going on that day, I think it just felt extremely annoying that Newcastle scored early. But Spurs recovered, and they really throttled the shit out of Newcastle. And frankly, like, I think 3-1 would have been flattering Newcastle, let alone 3-2. So, I, I mean, I think Spurs acquitted themselves very well on the day, considering, in this very smooth transition I'm about to make, all the other bullshit surrounding this match. I mean... Just to be clear to our listeners, uh, the Saudi Arabia bought Newcastle United. Uh, no, they didn't. Okay, I'm a sorry. A separate and distinct <laughs> sovereign wealth fund that has nothing to do with Saudi Arabia or the leadership thereof. So they bought. Congrats Newcastle. on your new job at NBC. <laughs> a a uh, a uh, sovereign wealth fund that may or may not be run by a bunch of uh, Saudi princes. Uh, who might or might not be fans of the wrestler played by Macho Man Randy Savage at the beginning of Spider-Man named Bonesaw, uh, bought Newcastle United. 
Um, and yeah, this was their first match, and it was this like weirdly carnival atmosphere. And I, I want to be actually be very clear. To a point, I don't blame Newcastle fans. My point is dressing up like sheiks and waving the Saudi flag because there is a level at which they have had awful ownership that I completely understand them being hostile. Spurs fans bitch about Daniel Levy, and God knows there's things he could have done better, but like he is not Mike Ashley, and there is. Something with new, some, some Newcastle fans, I totally get that you're happy Mike Ashley's gone. And there is a level at which, I, I think, you know, he's awful and there's a lot of other reasons to not like him. David Kahn once had a quote about Manchester City. I wish, when, when they were bought by uh, Abu Dhabi, I wish this hadn't happened to anyone, but if it had to happen to someone, I'm glad it was us. And there's a level at which, if you're a Newcastle fan and you're just like, you know what, I'm just glad Mike Ashley's gone and I am glad anyone else is in charge and i can't control it and i'm just gonna deal with it this level at which like fine i can respect that it is what it is but the level of celebration not just from newcastle fans but from like frankly official like premier league affiliated affiliated tv networks on both sides of the atlantic i i can't speak to how they talked about this other places was disgusting it was I mean, it's 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 bad for a whole variety of reasons on a sporting level, on a humanitarian level. It's it's just it was gross, and to watch the match get off to such a good start for them was I found exceptionally frustrating. Uh, ben, you're a resident communist, so I'm going to let you take it from here. But I mean, what is? I, I'm just going to let you take it from here. I don't, I don't have a good way to tee you up, so I'm going to let you take this and. Whatever direction you feel like. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I knew when it happened that we were going to be the first team to experience the Newcastle Carnival under the new Saudi regime. And I was dreading it. And, you know, the international break let me forget it a little bit. But, like, as soon as, like, things kicked off, it just triggered something just visceral inside of me. And, you know, I just wanted to destroy these people because they were gross and horrible. And honestly, given the way the match played out, I'm, I'm fine with them scoring that first goal. Um, it allowed them to taste a, a little bit of happiness before we just ripped it out of their mouths and made them go home crying. But the whole experience on every level has just been, been nauseating to see, you know, the way that the broadcasters from sky, from NBC sports, you know, only focused on that joyous aspect that Greg talked about of shedding the Mike Ashley years without any acknowledgement for like what we're signing up for was, was horrible to watch like it, it just showed how little responsibility these people bear towards any of the things we say we care about when we care about football um you know like we we suffered through the super league attempt earlier this season and the media was capable of treating that as you know, a crime against sports and humanity. But the fact that they weren't for something that is an actual crime against humanity 
is just incredibly revealing about where these interests lie and like what they actually care about. You know, the, the British sports media doesn't care about the Super League because of its violation of our sporting heritage. They care because it might mean bad things for their bottom line and their paymasters and, you know, the people that they answer to. The whole thing with the Saudi Arabian takeover was the kind of thing that you believe naively that the, you know, that the media has a responsibility to the public to question and interrogate. And it's very revealing that that is not the remit for these people, that questioning the decision to get in bed with uh, people who three years ago, like to the day of the takeover, murdered an American journalist. Like, this is like your ostensible colleague. And that's just not where your interest lies. Your interest lies in keeping the wheels greased for your fucking... Boris Johnson, Tory cronies, and allowing Saudi Arabia to, you know, pretend they have a, a real seat at the table in international business and foreign affairs. And it's, it's, it, it was shameful. Ben and I have a joke that there's a uh, phrase we both use, it's, capitalism makes wolves of us all. And we both thought this was a commonly used phrase. And then we investigated it one day and... Apparently it's not, and we both have, like, it's like a Mandela effect or something. I don't know. But there is, the reason I bring this up is there's a point that I, Jamie Redknapp made it on Sky Sports, and there's a point I've seen made on Twitter. And I don't think it's a point entirely without reason that all these owners are shitheads, and if you really want to dig, dig deep enough, they've all done awful things. But I think there's a difference here, because putting aside all the other human rights violations, which, you know, because essentially we're talking about the Saudi government here, which is different than I think like Joe Lewis scamming taxes from the British government, which is bad enough on its own, but it's not the same thing. But putting all that aside, the Saudi wealth fund is run by a guy we, we know has comm- has ordered a murder. Like if nothing else, all the, put all the other stuff aside. We know this guy's ordered somebody to be killed and dismembered. And, you know, for, I mean, it doesn't matter what for, but we know this and, it's not commented upon. It's like we have a fit and proper persons test, and this doesn't. This passes the fit and proper persons test. It's ridiculous. So, I mean, I think that's that. That kind of speaks to your point. Is the Saudi Wealth Fund tried to buy Newcastle about a year ago, and they did not pass the fit and proper persons test because Saudi Arabia had beef with Qatar, which led to pirating of being sport in the Middle East. And the reason why they approved it and decided, actually, you know what? They are fit and proper people is because they stopped the pirating beef because their TV rights were no longer infringed upon in their Cold War. Now they are fit and proper people. It gives away the game right there. And I mean, you look at the way that NBC covered it. I don't think you can separate it from the fact that in three weeks, bids are due from American broadcasters for the next Premier League TV contract. Why were they saying what they were saying? I don't know if that was on the front of their mind, but it was somewhere there. They have another TV contract to get, and if they had upset the Premier League, that might have hurt their ability to 
get the next TV contract. And I mean, that that all of this plays in and it, it really is just securing the bag at every single step. And listen, if you are an Arlo White, um, I understand it to a degree. Like we all have had to suck it up and do a thing we didn't really want to do because our we had to get a paycheck. Like that's your job sometimes. And I mean, I'm sure Arlo White has read ad copy for things that he thought was stupid before. And he's like, it's my job to read the ad copy. And it's part of the job. Like, whatever. You had to go out there and say what you had to say. Um, you could have said it in other words. You, you could have found other ways to do it. But at the or end of the just day. just not say it. I, I mean, I, I think to a degree it was probably at a minimum spoken from above that he had to say something. And he could, like, whatever. But I think that the way that he then defended himself after um, speaks to the fact that this wasn't a guy who just had to appease his corporate overlords. There was more to it than the, to it than that. And it was really illuminating to me because even the person who was charged with communicating the entire league and the games and these situations to this entire country um, on day one, it was clear that what the Saudis are attempting to do worked it worked like this is exactly what the saudis want this is why they bought newcastle is to get this message about saudi arabia out there and to normalize it and and to treat it as a well it's both sides i mean they kind of did this bad thing but look how many people they're making happy in newcastle this is a good thing that saudi arabia does they participate in football like everybody else um and, and and it worked and it was honestly Maybe my naivete is showing here, but it was astounding to me how well it worked on day one. It usually takes time for things to get normalized. It doesn't normally come out this way on day one across every major outlet in this country and abroad. And and it was really disheartening to see that, like, the concept of sports washing and normalization really for in this situation the extent of what Saudi Arabia had to do was write the check to secure the purchase of the team from Mike Ashley, literally nothing else. People bought it on that alone. That was what was so astounding to me. And on the fans, I mean, I get it to a degree. Um, we all make moral compromises to, to be fans of this team of whatever team it is um, because no teams are pure. And I mean, like, I mean, Tottenham fans, like, I cheer when Lucas Moore scores a goal. Lucas Moore supports a fascist. Um, like we, we all kind of make our peace with it the way that we make our peace with it. But I'm not out here trying to pretend that Lucas Moore is a good person and his support of Bolsonaro is actually okay. And that's really all I kind of hoped for from Newcastle fans was that they would be like, hey, you know what? Um, Saudi Arabia really sucks and they have committed a lot of very bad things. But you know what? They own my team now, and I hope my team wins soccer games. That's literally all they would have had to do. It's like, I'm going to keep rooting for my team. Our our owners do some really other bad things, and I'm going to make my peace with it the way I can because, like, that's what we all have to do across various things. And uh, not only did they not do that, but they went 90 steps past it, and that was shocking to me. Well, we talk a lot about – Go ahead, Ben. It's weird because, like, I don't remember that happening at Man City or PSG, like, to that – degree well you know where it happened it happened at chelsea they wrap their arms around that they own that in exactly the same way i i I feel like that i feel like chelsea is where it did happen but i know what you're i know what you're saying about city and and psg i i agree with you there like there was like a acknowledgement of the money but there was not a cosplaying of 
you know no but there like, was an you, there were people being... dressed as like arab sheiks in the stands and there waving was... saudi flags i feel like I there was an embrace of being like nouveau riche at chelsea that was of this vein i i see what you're saying about city and psg and that specific type of ownership i'm not saying that they're I, better I, i'm just surprised like i'm not surprised at all by the way the media has treated this like that's just how it all works I'm very surprised by not just the acceptance of this new reality for Newcastle fans, but the like full-throated endorsement of it was on a level I was just really unprepared for. I mean, there is like... Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing that, I, that also it, I think is somewhat unique about it is that there is a... And, and this, this is not dissimilar... Um, to City or PSG, it is. It, it, I think this is more of a contrast to Chelsea, although it it did take on a whole other life here that we did not see with City and PSG. Um, it, is there is a race and religion aspect here too, where like we saw what their fans were wearing, and I don't think that was uh, done with the utmost understanding and, and respect. And similarly, Tottenham fans were singing things that were really really offensive as well. And that, like, there's this whole other aspect to it, too, where, and this has nothing to do with with um, the Saudi government running a football team or, or, or buying the team, because this is beyond that. But it does kind of highlight just from the media to the fans to just broader society how horribly unprepared and ugly this is going to get on more than just uh, we root for the football team. Like, it's going to be ugly and was ugly from the fans and how they express their support for their football team and their new owners and also from opposing fans like Tottenham fans and how ugly they are going to... Mo- it's going to be as they mock them for it. Well, it's... it's right. They it's say you racist. can't take it politics... and... I mean, you say you can't take politics out of sports, which you never have been able to do, but what is a fairly new development is directly injecting geopolitics into, um, into at least soccer by virtue of, you know, a country of countries running clubs, which is wildly distorting on a sporting level because they have a level of money that even a Roman Abramovich or someone like him can't hope to keep, like, you know, keep up with. Like, Real Madrid can barely keep up with it. So on that level, you have it. And then if when you straight up inject, like like you said, Ben, like, you know, like uh, Saudi Arabia, a country with its own religion and culture and whatever, and crimes or whatever, like, all that stuff is bundled up in this. And it's being directly injected into this club in a way that's like going to have all these sort of unexpected or just knock-on effects that we've already seen in a single match against Spurs who probably it's only going to get worse from here. Here's one thing that like just really, really just upset me over the course of, of that 90 minutes is, you know, during the match at the end of the first half, a Newcastle fan had a cardiac incident and, you know, Sergio Regulon noticed it, got the ref to stop the match. Eric Dyer got a guy to bring a defibrillator into the, into the stands. And like, that guy's life was saved. And so much of the conversation around the game was about there are some things more important than sports. And, like, they were able to acknowledge that, like, 
sometimes we need to put the competitiveness aside and care about our fellow man as this person, you know, laid dying in the stands. And like, there's an acknowledgement of that on this like incredibly micro level of like, there's a person suffering. We should care about that more than sports. And like, that's true. Like we absolutely should have. And it was very good that that happened. However, against the backdrop of everything else that was happening that day, where we, all of these people talking about this, just aggressively disregarded the human rights and the humanity of so many other people in the world um, who have suffered at the hands of the Saudi government, you know, and said specifically, like, what are these people supposed to do? It's a sports team. They just want to like their sports team. Why are they expected to care about this? Like, that dissonance between those two events was just so incredibly jarring to see how we're capable of understanding that sports isn't important in the grand scheme of things, and yet wash away a, a much bigger problem with, with, the, with this, this ownership in the name of sports. And it's just, it, was, it made the whole thing disgusting. And nobody seems to be acknowledging that tension and the problem with those two things coexisting on the same day. Yeah, like literally all I ask is like, just don't lie about it. Like, I, I get it. Like if you're in, like, if I don't think that every single Newcastle fan has to now be like, well, I'm not a Newcastle fan anymore. But like how we make our peace with this is difficult. Um, we do it all the time. And like, yeah, this is a, a really stark in an extreme instance of it. But like it, it, we have to try and figure out our way to, I mean, we, we live in a capitalistic world. We, we kind of, we navigate that the best that we can and that's fine. Just don't lie about it. Like don't try and pretend that what Saudi Arabia has done, they didn't do. Don't try and pretend that Saudi Arabia didn't buy this club and some, and the wealth fund, which they have assurances is not going to be influenced by the government bought this team. Just, just be honest about it. And like, listen, if everyone could be honest about it, if you're, if you're a Newcastle fan, you'd be like, yeah, it, Newcastle or the Saudi Arabian government is terrible and, and they own my soccer club now and, and that sucks. Um, but like, I hope my team like, okay, cool. But like it, it was, it was the amount of lying that was really galling to me because we like, this is, this isn't a, like, this isn't a debated topic. This isn't difficult. There, there are not both sides to this. It is a straightforward series of facts. And how you want to negotiate those facts in, in, within your own heart and, and find your own kind of acceptance and peace with that, do that how you will. Like, that's not going to be easy for anybody. Um, just don't lie to me. And, like, Sunday was just a giant bag of lies. Well, and that's where, I, I mean, I think I think you captured it, Ryan, because that's where I get frustrated. Is like, you know, Newcastle fans, in a weird way, are in a bad position. I mean, I know that's a strange thing to say about a club that just probably got more money than God, you know, put at their disposal. But, you know, it's like you grow up in Newcastle, you grow up a Newcastle fan. Like, I don't expect you just to turn your back on the club. It is what it is. It sucks. It I expect you to display a certain level of realism about what's going on. But really where my problem is, is, you know, it's the Premier League lying to us that, oh, the Saudi government's not being involved, that these are fit and proper people. It's broadcasters lying to us about what this means. 
and who this is important to and who it's not important to and admitting, <clears throat> you know, I know Spurs, uh, um, I'm forgetting the name of our LGBT supporters group, uh, LGBTQ supporters group, uh, they were highlighting, you know, there's a, there's a guy in Saudi Arabia in jail for being gay, which is, it's fucking 2021. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, and that we're, and now it's okay to do business with these people. But, you know, somehow pirating was the issue stopping this, as opposed to the fact that they're, like, hacking up guys with bone saws and putting people in jail for being gay. Like, that these are the issues that are the problem and not those issues. And it's, you know... Like I said, capitalism makes wolves of us all. We all have to make our peace with the moral compromises we have. And frankly, like, if we're all being honest with ourselves, there's always been shitty owners of soccer clubs. We want to go back. They just used to be the local businessman who was cheating on his wife and, like, skimming money off his business as opposed to, like, a petro state that engages in regular human rights abuses. And obviously there's a difference of scale. But, you know, we've always had to make these sort of moral compromises. It's just... I think you captured it, Ryan. It's like, just don't ask, just don't lie to me about it. Just do not ask me to swallow that. Like, you know, let's all be honest about what we're doing here. And I can't even get that. I mean, and like, it's, there's a point where like, there's a difference in scope to the point that yes. it's a difference yes. in kind. Like, yes, you're right. You know, you're right. Yes. Joe Lewis bet against the British pound. Okay. That's fine. Joe Lewis fled the, the country and didn't pay taxes Okay, well, that's bad. But, like, that's a different kind of bad than did 9-11. Like, that's different. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, when, when Brian is our only co-host next week, listeners, you'll know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't no, expect right, much. Right. Frank Lampard to get the job very quickly. But it's just, it's just grim. It's, but it's not just that, because I think there is, as much as those things are different, like, there is a level at which I think we can just deal with it. It's the, For me, it's just that, like, it's not just that the Saudis are running it. I mean, it's bad. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to excuse it. It's that, on top of that, I have to listen to Arlo White feed me a bunch of bullshit every week. I have to listen to, if I was in England, it would be Jamie Redknapp or whoever. You know, I have to, like... It's just who me. incidentally is close personal friends with one of the board members of the new Newcastle regime, who is also a, a heavy donor to the Boris Johnson government. Like the whole thing is just fucking... also, also the son of a man, give me a break. The son of a man who put Scott Parker in, in the 88th minute of a game against Aston Villa. We are chasing, chasing a win to get to the champions league. Anyway, sorry. Uh, anyway, so this this kind of sports washing cannot stick. No, it's 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 all it's all fucking awful, and we can't even rely on some cranky like Scottish guy to get like half in the bag before the game and just like speak his mind. is is really depressing, and you know it's 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 really aggravating that on top of because I think we are all willing to swallow some unsavory characters, and I I, I think you're right, Ben. I don't want to like brush past it this is a different level of unsavory character than some of the other stuff we're talking about. But there's a level at which we're all willing to swallow that. It's being lied to about it by all these people that is just makes it so much more unpalatable. Well, I think with, for me, like it's, it's the lies aren't just like, it's, it's the, just a total debasement of this thing that we all spend way too much time caring about. Like whether we're, you know, born and raised in this community where we have found that community, 
like that is a community institution that means a lot to a lot of people on in a lot of places around England, around the world, and leagues all over the you know the globe. And the goal of the you know this this sports watching enterprise is not to be good at sports. Like that is not a goal. That is a a mechanism for them to be treated as serious business actors, you know, with the UK government and other partners around the world. Like they are taking this thing we care about and using it as a vehicle for their own, you know, sports washing purposes. And like we, we use that word sports washing all the time as if, you know, we understand exactly what it means. And it's not just like getting the Newcastle fans to think Saudi Arabia is a good country. It is about, you know, lending credibility to the Saudi government as like serious actors who should be engaged with in normal politics and normal business. And like, that is the end game for these people. They don't give a shit if like you or I suddenly think the Saudi government is good. You know, it is that, they have now done this, and so they have a seat at the table with all of these other fucking imbeciles in England. And, like, they're all doing their own thing, and we're all the ones suffering for it. You know, this game we care about, this league we care about, is just being just degraded in service of of their fucking shitty geopolitics. And we all have to be the ones, you know, like you said, making our own peace with this. And... I don't want to fucking have to make peace with this. I don't want to have to deal with this. Like we are losing these things that mean a lot to us on the altar of this fucking, you know, globalist capitalist nonsense. But and like that is, it, you think about it beyond that, like take some of the principle out of it, which I'm not trying to, I mean, cause I think you make very good points, Ben, but like, I know for, I, I, certainly this got reinforced for me during the Trump years. Like stuff like sports was like a way to like get my brain off of, the planet's burning. Fascists are getting elected to important government offices. Everything's terrible. Like sports, are, and now I have to—I can't even fucking do that with the Premier League, which is a very selfish thing to say. I want to be very clear: that is the least of these problems. But I can't even do that because now I have to like make these fucking moral compromises and, you know, make my peace with petro states that murder people and imprison gay people just to fucking watch Tottenham play Nuno ball I mean, it's 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 enormously frustrating on so many levels yeah I mean I think I think also one of the things and, and I think kind of Ben talked about it in a specific way with with the fan in the stands but the other thing that gets me is all the things that we that that the sport and us as fans and the media and the players and everyone likes to talk about all the time is well, it's so great because of the way it brings people together. And it's in so many countries. And, and we are three Americans watching the Premier League and living and dying with this club in North London. And there are people in Singapore doing that and people in Nigeria doing that and on and on and on. And we go on about how great all these things are and how and at no point do they sit there and say, yeah, that that's why they did it. That's why Saudi Arabia bought the team. And you're like, yeah, all these things really are great. Like they are. And, and I'm thankful for them. And I think it's great in a lot of ways. But like, 
they only want to acknowledge the things that are great about it and not the like, hey, you know what? 5% of this also has some ills. And uh, that 5% uh, took center stage in a really, really bad way. And like, yeah, that's, that is also part of it. And our our willingness or, or, or the league's appeal, like that the league's appeal is that. Like they are not buying Newcastle because it's a good investment. Um the not that you can't make money on a Premier League football team, but there's a reason why Newcastle was on the market for seven years and nobody else bought them. There's a reason why at any given time you can buy about half the Premier League teams if you want to. The reason no one buys them is because if you have that much money, you can you can invest it in much smarter things. You can make way more money elsewhere. That's not why they're there, and it's blatant, and that's okay. Like, I'm not saying that you that the Premier League should be a vehicle where all investors are there because of their ability to make profit. It it is what it is. Like that is how this works. But let's not pretend that the reason they're there is because it's a good investment. The reason they're there is because of the global reach and the way that they know the media is going to turn a blind eye because they know that it's the sports media covering them and not actual um, journalists who have an investment in understanding what it is that they're talking about. And and it's it's the ability to look the other way that I'm just like, I mean, if if the logic being put forward right now to talk about Saudi Arabia buying Newcastle, if that level of logic was applied to Tottenham buying a backup goalkeeper, like they would get any media member would get laughed out of the building. They would get laughed out of the building because it is so absurd the way it is being talked about. And if they were talking about some stupid football thing, people would call that person an idiot. And yet everybody has gotten behind that same level of discourse around Saudi Arabia buying Newcastle because it's just easier that way. Well, it's think about look at Manchester City. They've got, by all accounts, a very well run. Everything about Manchester City is extremely well run. Like, but talk about the media facing stuff, their social media, their communication staff, all this stuff. City have put together something that is an extremely well run operation, and I think you just see Premier League journalists incredibly impressed by that to the point where they don't ask questions of that. They just talk about how, like, you know how good their social media is, how good their match day meals are, how, you know, slick it is when they unveil a player, you know, to the point where they ignore their human rights questions, ignore their font choices for cup games, you know, all sorts of like abuse, human rights abuses go undetected. And I think you're just assuming you're, you're seeing that assumption happening with, with Newcastle right now. And it's just, I think that's a, Really good point, Ryan. It's it's so easy. I mean, there's going to be like a cadre, and some are even very well respected um, journalists who are going to question this. But by and large, you know, just because they know the money is going to buy a well-run, not even will, but can buy a well-run operation, they're going to give the benefit of the doubt until they like soil themselves in front of everyone and run themselves like you know the tie ownership that ran City before Abu Dhabi took over. I mean, it's just it's enormously frustrating that we don't have a better sort of a better equipped media core to handle this. It's and that's what's a, wild it's not, though. 
it's not being equipped. Like it's not like negligence in in media coverage. It's like this is what they're paid to do. This is their job. They are the marketing arm of the entire enterprise. It's not like these people are just like too dumb to see it and like aren't covering it because they're bad global journalists. It's like this is just the job description. I mean, I I think that I think part of that is true. I also think that like some of them really are that dumb. Um, they're they're either that dumb or I'll never say they're not dumb, or they are so ignorant to the topic at hand that they're unable to grasp the the scale of what is being talked about. But I I mean I think what you said, Greg, kind of goes back to what astounded me. Um, is that like you look at Man City, not that the media covered themselves in glory, not that fans covered themselves in glory. But there was more skepticism. There was more talked about. There were more questions asked. And we don't hear that now. Um, but that's because they put together a really well-run enterprise. Like, it, as gross as it sounds, um, they had to earn it to a degree. Mm-hmm. Newcastle didn't have to earn it. Literally, all the Saudi Arabia didn't have to earn it with Newcastle. Literally, all that was ex- asked of them is, did the check clear? Because After they're... that... They're expecting that, that, another city. That's that's what happened. City did the work. But like that's the thing is like city at least had to earn it. Like they had to put the work in to make people think of them as the stewards of Manchester City, City Football Group, great footballing enterprise. They that that was that required a lot of work and a lot of time, and they did it very very effectively. That wasn't demanded of Newcastle. Nobody asked the question. Nobody cared. They're like, oh, the check cleared. You're great. That's really all it took. And I was astounded at just like, this was day one. That's literally all you're asking of them. You're not making them work for it, even in the slightest. And don't get me wrong. You shouldn't be able to like football your way out of human rights atrocities, but at least make them like be good at sports washing. Like don't just be like, well, the check cleared, which is what they did. And that I'm just... I can't get over how easy they made it on him, even relative to what they had done in the past. It's it's all enormously like whatever level you from a whether you want to look at it from like a character level, from a just pure sporting level, from a media coverage level, whatever level you choose to look at it, it's enormously depressing. But hey, at least Tottenham sort of stuck one in their eye on their on the day that it was supposed to be their big party. I mean, I just. All I want is for every team to just dick Newcastle this yeah, season. Relegate and let them take over a championship club next summer. And like, yeah, it's gonna end badly for everybody else, like eventually, but like send them to the fucking championship. I mean, there's like, a level at which we don't know I mean, you know, City's given them a blueprint, but like you know, they still have to they still have to do the work. And I think that is something that gets overlooked is like city didn't just spend a ton of money. They spent it very well and did a lot of difficult shit, but you know, they've got enough money. They'll probably get there. Eventually it would just be nice if they couldn't. Yeah. I try to get relegated before they have to have the opportunity to do anything. At least least make them spend a solid 80 mil just to get back in the premier league. Yes. Like Like, make, make them spend that and, and, make them deal with the indignity of being in the second division and at least give us like, because it, 
they're going to get at least one transfer window, which means that if they get relegated, we'll at least get like two news cycles of how the Saudis failed. Um, and that'll at least bring me joy before, you know, they get promoted back up and then succeed at some point. Cause that's inevitable. At least give me like, let them get relegated once. So I could at least get the one new cycle of how they are failures because they had a transfer window and more money than God and still couldn't stay in the top flight. There was a uh, article somewhere, and I apologize that I can't remember where about it. Just how mad it was probably Alistair Gold or something, but about how mad Levy must be that another Petro State is coming in because you know if City didn't exist, we would have finished in like the top four seven out of the last nine years or something like that. And that's true. Like if City didn't exist, Spurs would have had a much easier path in Champions League. But like the thing I thought about was like. How angry must Arsenal be? Because if it weren't for Chelsea and City, like where would they have been for all those years? Because they were, they, I mean, they really got dethroned by two Petro State clubs, whereas Spurs have just had their ambitions sort of screwed over by one. I don't know. It's 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 going to be really annoying. I hope they just are perpetually 2008 City and can never really put it together, and then they just like sell their shares to I don't know Sunderland or something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think it's underrated. Like, like the the idea that they're just going to be another city. Like, city is exceptionally good at what they do, and it took them a very long time to build that infrastructure, both like physical and human. Um, like, they're definitely not going to get relegated repeatedly. Like, they are going to be a much better team than they've been. You can generally spend your way out of being terrible. Um, you can't spend your way to being good without actually being a competent footballing organization. I- I'm still holding out hope that after they get relegated this season, they can spend their way to eighth place every year. Like, I think that is still very much a possibility because it's being good at football is hard. Like, I mean, just just because you have money doesn't mean you're going to be good. I think it's very much in the cards that they may perpetually not be able to actually be as good as we think they could even, be even psg is i think they're probably not awful but like i mean they certainly have a big old cushion being in the french league yeah i mean and they haven't won the league every year their only goal is the champions league they haven't managed that neither have man city as well run as they are like yes there are limits to what this can do but like again it doesn't matter that's not the project being yes. good is, is just a benefit Oh, no, I'm just talking about the part that would bring me joy is to see them sputter along (laughs) in eighth place. Like, as I said, like the the footballing, the footballing world conceded to the Saudi government and their success on day one. Like, it's already proof that they won. There's not going to be any like as, as long as they can stay in the Premier League after even if they get relegated this year, if they get back up and they stay in the Premier League, they won. Like or that uh, is, avoid that's, buffoonery. That's, they just have to yeah, avoid like, buffoonery. They have to look like a well-run club. They don't even have to look like a well-run club. They just literally have to be in the Premier League so that way people talk about Saudi-owned Newcastle like a Premier League club. Not even a good one. Literally just be there. We lost that part, but at least I can feel better about their failures going forward. That doesn't mean anything for the world, but it means something to me in my heart. Well, that's a that's a kind of a depressing place to leave it this week, but I think that's where we're going to leave it. We asked for questions before this podcast, but we've run much longer than I thought we would. Thanks for a good discussion, guys. Uh, Ryan, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, don't look for me. Okay, fair enough. Ben, where can people find you on the internet? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ryan Rosenblatt, and you can find me on Twitter at Comrade Uspers. You can find me on Twitter at Skipjack0079, and don't forget to look for us on TikTok, where we um, will have very good conversations uh, while about Saudi ownership while we do uh, the kids' latest dance crazes. Uh, for Ben, for Ryan, for Brian, who has still not figured out how to unmute himself, and uh, for Brett Rainbow, I have been your host, Greg. Come on, Uspers.